The IPO window can be narrow. Be ready when it opens. Think timing is everything? Look again. Readiness is vital. Deloitte's audit and IPO readiness services can help companies prepare for IPO and exit opportunities. For example, a Deloitte audit is an opportunity for insight, one that can help leaders see further and deeper into their businesses and can help inform vital decisions. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E dot com forward slash US forward slash E-G-C. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet my friend, Shiza Shahid, co-founder and co-CEO of Our Place, a mission-driven startup reimagining kitchenware for the modern, multi-ethnic, and global kitchen. Deeply rooted in our culture, the brand celebrates gathering and food traditions around the world. Shiza founded Our Place in 2019 on the belief that home cooking has the power to bring people everywhere together. Since then, our place designs have resulted in more than 140 patents, wait lists of over 30,000 people, and more than 1,000 press headlines. The iconic Always Pan has sold out more than 30 times and is beloved by celebrities around the world from Lizzo to David Beckham. Prior to Our Place, Shiza also co-founded the Malala Fund with Nobel Prize winner Malala and led the organization as founding CEO advocating for and investing in the rights of all girls to school. Shiza also launched Now Ventures, an angel fund to invest in mission-driven startups. Shiza has been named one of Time's 30 Under 30 People Changing the World, Forbes 30 Under 30, and Inc.'s top female founders. And with that, let's welcome my good friend, Shiza. Shiza, let's start with the basics. Let's talk through the beginning of our place. How'd you end up there? What was the aha moment? What made you decide in 2019 to go and swing? You know, my mother never taught me to cook. Growing up, I never fried an egg, never made a piece of toast. And I always thought it was because my mother had this fear that I would get injured in the kitchen. There was always hot oil and hot water. And it was only later in life that I realized that it was my mother's way of trying to set me free. She had been born into a time and place where her opportunities were constrained by the patriarchy, by the family and community she was born into. She wasn't given the opportunity to pursue a career or higher education. And because her life had been constrained by domestic burdens, she wanted to give my sister and I every opportunity to go in and pursue our dreams. But then I moved halfway across the world when I was 18 years old. I was given a scholarship to study at Stanford University. So I moved from Pakistan to Palo Alto and I couldn't feed myself. And first few years I was in heaven just living off American junk food. But then I, I started to feel really sick and I started learning to cook. And through the process of learning to cook, I was exposed to the kitchenware industry and realized how outdated it was in so many ways. For one, there was no brand that was really speaking to culture through food that was rooted in inclusion and identity and celebrating Pakistani food and Mexican food and Indian food in the same way that we celebrate Italian food or French food. Um, For another, product design was outdated. Most cookware companies, kitchenware companies today sell thousands of items 
avocado slicers and cherry pitters and 16-piece cookware sets. None of us have room for that. And most cookware companies today are still using PTFEs or Forever Chemicals, what's colloquially known as Teflon. It was time to build a brand that was really rooted in culture and identity. And also where product design was modern, multifunctional, beautiful, and clean and healthy. But how did you get started? And walk us through that first year was like sort of, you know, hand-to-hand combat. We actually worked on the product for two years before we ever launched My partner and I, we bootstrapped our savings and started designing our very first product, the Always Pan, which you referenced. And the inspiration was simply, let's take a 16-piece cookware set, measure every vector, every inch obsessively, and engineer a shape that sits at the intersection that is shallow enough to flip an egg, deep enough to roast an entire chicken. It's made with a non-toxic coating, so you don't have to worry about the health impact, the environmental impact. And that's beautiful because beautiful design inspires us. When we have our cookware, our appliances tucked in the back of our cabinets, we're less likely to cook. When they're sitting proudly on our countertop and stovetop, we're more likely to cook. And that was our whole mission, get more people cooking and having conversations around the dinner table. So for the first two years, we were just designing and prototyping and bootstrapping. And uh, then we went out to investors um, just as we were getting up, gearing up to launch the business, uh, me and my two co-founders, and uh, we got over a uh, hundred rejections. Um, you know, we were outsiders. I come from the nonprofit world. Most people didn't believe in the category, and if they were going to bet on the category, it wasn't going to be on me. Um, it was going to be on a Silicon Valley insider or someone who probably wasn't an immigrant woman who'd worked on girls' education. And so it was really, really hard. We got a little bit of capital in, enough to to place those first orders and get a small team together and and get the business off the ground. And once we had launched the business, we launched with one pan, one bowl, one glass, and one plate. The dinner for four bundle, everything you need to cook and share a meal with, with the ones you love. And people tried the product. They tested the product. They saw the brand, they saw themselves in the stories the brand was telling. Let's talk a little bit about what drove that growth and what can you pay forward to other brands and companies trying to build their user base that you learned? Yeah, I think two things that are really important. One is our place has a brand that stands for something, that means something. I think every other brand in our category, in in most categories, it is a product. Brands in our category, kitchen and home, simply weren't talking about culture. And most of our cultures were lumped into, at best, one column in the magazine or one corner of an aisle in the grocery store. And our place really turned that on its head and said, we're going to celebrate all our cultures loudly and proudly. From the beginning, we had these collections called tradition wear, where we would partner with the community from start to finish to design products and share stories that celebrated often an underrepresented tradition. We've celebrated Shabbat and Lunar New Year and Diwali and Noruz and Noche Buena, um, and we're still going. And I think that sense of a brand that made people feel something was and remains essential to what motivates us, me and my team, and I think what draws our consumers in, and it stands in contrast to the rest of the industry. The second thing was we had products that were truly differentiated. Most brands in this space will design their products by walking into a factory partner, picking up a glass, 
saying, make me this glass, paint it pink, and put my logo at the bottom. The way that our place designed products was we would start with how are people hydrating and what are the challenges in that industry and how can we improve it? So the Always Pan took two years to make. Every single product, even today, it takes about that time to design. We start with a problem, we talk to our community, we document our own experiences, and then we start figuring out how we can do it better. And if we can do it better, we will launch the product typically a year and a half in after many rounds of prototyping and designing and printing and testing and refining. And if not, we won't. And that's why we have an extensive IP portfolio, patent portfolio. And that's why, you know, if you walk into any other kitchenware store and then walk into an art place store, it looks very, very different today because we're making a few things and we're making the best product, the best version of those things. Talk a little bit about the challenges of manufacturing. You know, most of the companies that we have on this podcast are software and tech businesses, and you are a direct-to-consumer homeware business with manufacturing, and obviously that was problematic during COVID. What have you learned about mastering manufacturing? Yeah, making things is incredibly hard. Making things well and in new ways and with innovation is, is near impossible, and uh, it's all about marketing. Our place is great marketing, but we're all about product. We have a large product team that comes from the best companies and places around the world. And we're largely a team of creatives and obsessive product designers. Making products is hard. Making cookware and appliances, those are deeply technical categories. And for us, one of the things we're most passionate about is eliminating forever chemicals. We've never used forever chemicals. We never will. But almost every other cookware brand still uses PTFE coatings these are chemicals that are increasingly under regulation, but they're still in almost all nonstick cookware. They are terrible for the environment. They can have terrible impact on human health, worker safety, animal health. We've been doing a lot of work to engineer longer and longer lasting toxin-free, PFAS-free forever chemicals, which is some of the work we're most proud of, we launched a coating this year that lasts 50% longer and is um, a very high performance coating in the world of ceramic versus Teflon. And looking at next year, we have some really exciting advancements and we're pushing the industry to exit this chemical. The work there is, it's a lot of product innovation, a lot of testing, a lot of design, a lot of um, supply chain and quality and sourcing and inventory planning and inventory management and forecasting and doing that well is critical to to our success one of my co-founders amir um, his background is in consumer product manufacturing and he has really led in building an incredible team that drives that today so i think it's really important as you are building any business to take every part of the business seriously you know not just marketing but great product, great operations, great customer service, great team and culture. Otherwise, the thing that you ignored will be the thing that ultimately causes you to fail. But you have a big ambition to really take over the whole category. You've launched appliances, you have tableware and plates, and where do you want to take our place? 
We look at the category as a whole and we launch products where we think that we can do it better. We started with cookware, the always pan and the perfect pot. You can now choose your materials, ceramic or cast iron. We added bakeware. I sent you our oven pan, which you can also use as, as a stovetop griddle. We then went into tableware. What is, what is the perfect bowl? What is the perfect plate? I mean, how do you make an ecosystem that all works together? Uh, we then launched textiles. We actually launched a beautiful apron with Selena Gomez. And, you know, it just is, is this gorgeous, almost like a dress that makes you feel powerful and sexy in the kitchen versus going back to that sense of, for my mother, cooking was was oppressive. And for me, it became liberating. I think great design and choice is so central to that. So making you feel like you do get to choose how you cook, when you cook, um, what you make, and really have pride in that. And we launched knives, the only set of knives you need, three three knives, and you're done. The serrated as chefs and a pairing. So that sense of simplifying and just giving better options is something that we're continuing. We hope that soon you'll be able to press a button and have everything you need and nothing you don't to cook and share a meal with, with your loved ones. We also want to continue celebrating culture and tradition. There's so many traditions around the world and our place's vision is to become the most beloved, trusted and culturally impactful brand in the most important rooms in every home in the world. So I did say rooms because while we are very much focused on the kitchen today, our brand is expansive. Our approach to how we live and gather and cook and celebrate is expansive. And we may one day exit the kitchen, just not yet. And I said in every home in the world, because we've always been a global brand, we launched our first market that was not the US, our very first year in, in business. We're now in four countries, UK, Canada, the US. We just launched Australia. Everywhere we go, we embed in the community. We partner with activists, with chefs, with nonprofits. We're not a American brand coming in. We are part of the fabric of the culture and community there. People eat and celebrate everywhere and wherever they are, we want to be. Talk about distribution. And a lot of your distribution is direct to consumer, but how have you thought about evolving that? Yeah, we have um, an incredible head of operations who oversees our distribution. Again, another thing that we invested in early, first few months, it was a nightmare. You know, we were just getting up and running. We were in the middle of the pandemic and we were figuring it all out very quickly. We, you know, for us, it's about customer experience. We have to figure out how to be as honest to our customers we can possibly be. And that includes saying your product will arrive on this date and almost always delivering, barring any anything that is entirely out of our control, like a labor union strike, we have to deliver and we have to preempt and we have to show up in every part of that interaction. And by the way, and also the seasonality that, that complicates a business like ours, where so many people, it's a perfect gift for the holidays. So many people are buying, you know, November, December, um, also January, New Year's resolutions, New Year, time to clean up our cookware, clean up our kitchens, clean up our diet. So we today have four distribution centers already. Um, and what that allows us to do in the U.S., we have two that allows us to essentially deliver to almost every part of the U.S. within two days. And we've built that ourselves because it's, you know, you want to get things quickly and often it's a present and we often forget to plan our presents two weeks in advance. So it's like, oh, it's mom's birthday in three days. You can go on to our website 
and order and most things will deliver in two days. We have a warehouse in Canada. We started out shipping from the US. A lot of e-com brands do that, but it was not a great experience for the customer because exchange rates and it would take a long time to get there. And they wanted, we want to make sure we offer a hundred day trial, free shipping, free returns. You can't do that if you're crossing borders. And we got a warehouse in Canada. We did the same in the UK and we just launched Australia. And, you know, we were for now we're we launched last month, we're shipping from the US, but early next year, we'll have a warehouse there. So that'll be our fifth. So really investing in that infrastructure because we want the customer to have the best experience. When you think about any predictions you have around relationship from a brand like yours to the consumer, how is it evolving? Anything you're noticing, any really interesting predictions that you see that are front and center over the next decade? Well, I think that that direct connection is becoming more and more important. About 87% of cookware today is still bought in physical retail, right? So you sort of name name the middle distributor, 87% is still happening in the physical realm. For us, we started as a D2C business in the pandemic. So not only were we online, we couldn't be together. We, we had our, our launch event and then we had to shut everything down in person. When we emerged from the pandemic, we opened our first two retail stores, one on Melrose in Los Angeles, one in Venice Beach in Los Angeles. We're an LA-based brand. Everything's designed there. So made sense to start in home base. And it became really lovely to now have this direct connection online, but also in person where our community is coming. We're doing cooking classes. We're doing community events. We did an event for Juneteenth last year. We did an event for National Latina Day. We gave, we give our space for, for causes we care about. We gave our space for a town hall uh, led by hospitality workers in Los Angeles. We do book launches, you know, people in our community who are writing cookbooks. And so that direct connection from the physical world to the digital world, I think is incredibly important. The other thing that I think is becoming has always been important, but I think brands that are not investing in it today will not be around in 50 years is true connection with communities grounded in culture, right? So your audience doesn't just celebrate Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter are beautiful traditions, but so is Lunar New Year and Diwali and Eid and Ramzan and Shabbat. And it's time that we speak to people with more specificity and we nurture real, true relationships we believe in speaking to one community at a time and really investing in that true authentic connection because the future is multicultural. Being a brand rooted in culture is some of the most important work of today because if we don't invest in those skills today, we don't start that way. It becomes very hard to build that trust later on. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Let's transition to you. You grew up in Pakistan. As you said, you went to Stanford at 18. How do you think that shaped you uh, as a founder? What would you say is something that happened that was remarkable that had a massive impact on, on helping you land where you are today as a very successful entrepreneur, totally revolutionizing our lives from our kitchens? Getting the scholarship to study at Stanford was transformative in, in, in many ways. Specifically, it's exposed me to entrepreneurship. Growing up in Pakistan and Islamabad, I didn't see entrepreneurship, um, or at least not as as at least not startups, right? The ability to have an idea, create a deck, bootstrap, or raise a little bit of, of venture capital and and build from there. And I didn't see women building businesses for sure. There isn't really a word for entrepreneur in my language. 
the closest is probably like businessman, right? Or trader. So entrepreneurship was something that I was exposed to at Stanford. And that's when I realized I'd been working my entire life. I'd been volunteering with nonprofits. I had been part of civil rights movements on the ground, but it was always from a nonprofit perspective. While I love the work that nonprofits do, sometimes you can achieve a different level of scale with a startup. And it was at Stanford that that became a possibility for me. But I would say the thing that's probably contributed to me being where I am today, which is you know, not a place where many women from my community are able to, to get to because of the constraints society or others place on them, I think it has just been the sense of showing up, of seeing an issue in the world and deciding to show up and, and say, how can I help? And that is sometimes, you know, it started out as a teenager carrying medical supplies into a women's prison and volunteering with charities, whatever I could do as a 13, 14, 15 year old. Um, that was, you know, at the age of 22, I quit my job at McKinsey to co-found a nonprofit called the Malala Fund because my friend Malala Yousafzai asked me to do that. And I knew that I had to help. And, you know, later in life, it meant looking at food and community and culture and building our place. So I think just a sense of you have, you have moments in your life where you are called to things that you are meant to do and just being open and ready to show up into those opportunities. How have you managed big transitions and mindset shifts? Because I really do think you bring back a beginner's mindset to the work that you do. And for a lot of people, those are really big shifts that they couldn't manage through quickly. It seems natural for you. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think nothing about what I'm doing today I could have predicted when I was 14, right? I was going to live in Islamabad. I was going to work in a local nonprofit. You know, I had it all mapped out. Even the United States, I left twice, came for college, and then I left. I went to Dubai because I wanted to live closer to where I'd grown up. And then when Malala was shot and I decided to co-found this Malala fund, I just had a sense it had to be in New York. It had to be where the UN is and the charities are. And I was 22 and I had to find a home where I could build something as a 22-year-old woman and have a shot at doing that. And, and that was New York. I think... Um, you know, it's not, it's not always calculated or thought through. I think it is being able to see an opportunity in a moment and ask whether at that point, is this the most impactful thing you can be doing with your life, with your time? Is this perhaps something that you can uniquely do? And the answer to that will shift. When, I, when Malala asked me to co-found the Malala Fund, I was 22 years old. I was a year out of college. I had no savings. I had no paperwork to even live in the United States, because I, until recently, was a Pakistani citizen, which limits my global, uh, my ability to travel and live places. It's one of the most difficult passports to live outside of Pakistan on or travel outside of Pakistan on. And my first, you know, the first thing I said was, no, I can't do this. And then I went back and I was like, I'll find you someone more qualified. And, and then I went back and I thought about it. And actually a friend of mine said to me, what's the worst that can happen? When I really thought about the risk, I realized the risk wasn't as big as I was making it. Like I, I would, even if this failed, I would still figure out a way to start again. And so often we make that risk of failure feel so much bigger, right? There's real risk. When I was fighting for girls' education in Pakistan, you know, against the Taliban, like there was real risk. 
And then there's imagined risk that we create in our heads. What will people think? And what if I fail? And what if they say no? And so one thing I think has been really separating real risk from imagined risk and not letting myself be held back by my fears. I think the other part is when you're actually pivoting, right? You're still using the same fundamental skills. The the things that made me good at starting the Malala Fund are the same things that make me good at starting our place. It's empathy, it's compassion, it's imagination, it's storytelling, it's seeing amazing talent and convincing them to join and inspiring them behind a vision. It's you know, clarity of message. It's convincing people to invest, whether it's nonprofit dollars or for-profit dollars. It's looking at the solutions we implement and, and measuring the outcomes and seeing how we improve such different industries yet such similar skills. I want to quickly ask, building companies really hard. It's really hard. You happen to have built one that's gotten very, very, very successful very quickly. What's been the hardest part for you? What's like been the thing that surprised you that you didn't expect? And, you know, give us a sense of like what advice you can pay for to other founders knowing that building a company is always hard. The hardest thing is how hard it is, you know, and I think it's, and that's the most surprising thing. And, Amen. It's, <laughs> and it doesn't, I think there's a sense of like the beginning is hard. And it, to me, like, yes, I know that the beginning was hard, but it feels every year feels like it challenges you at a, at a deeper level, right? Because every year... Maybe you can start a business on your strengths, but then you build an organization and that organization takes on your strengths and your weaknesses. Now you have an organization that is dealing with your weaknesses. And now you're like, these are the things that I have to fix within myself for my team, right? I see possibility everywhere. Amazing. That's what inspired me to start our place. I believe through sheer force of will against you know, what everybody else told me that what we're building will work. But the flip side of that is I can find it hard to say no, right? And now I have a team that says, well, we need relentless focus, which we do. So now I have to work on all the things about myself that I didn't work on. I think being an entrepreneur, you have to grapple with all of your own weaknesses and blind spots or they will hurt your organization. I'm only smiling because it's like, oh, it's so true. It's just so, it's... I just told you one of the, the lighter ones, right? Like, all, <laughs> and so, and so you, start to, you start to peel away and you deal with the ones that are easier and then you get to the, the next and the next. And so each year you're going deeper and deeper because what the organization is demanding, what the moment is demanding is harder and harder. What I had to do at the beginning was just work on an incredible product and tell the story of culture. Four years in, when you know major corporations are rip- ripping us off, I have to do it again, and I have to keep doing it again. It gets harder and harder. I think at the end of the day, it's also the most meaningful thing I've ever done. It's the most fulfilled I've ever been, um, and there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, and I think that's what makes it worth it, is you have to be grounded in something that keeps you inspired and deeply inspired and gives you the ability to dig deeper and and be energized and work harder. There's no shortcut to that. And I think you have to give it your all, every ounce of energy for at least at least your decade or more, right? There's no there's no shortcut to that. So I think that that's what I've learned. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't be doing anything else. I love that. Shazam, I'm gonna move to the quick fire round. First thing that comes to mind, I want to hear your kind of a well of deep wisdom. Um, 
What is a quote that you love? A quote that you live by, a mantra, anything, but something that really you deeply believe in. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how is the Viktor Frankl quote. And I think sort of applied to to this specifically, just the sense of the importance of meaning in life. And I think so many of us who are lucky and privileged, we often confuse meaning for pleasure. And what I've learned is life is actually not about pleasure, it's about meaning. And those of us who don't know how to find meaning keep filling it up with pleasure, but that's never what it was about. Amen. That's really, really well said. Um, What is an interview question you like to ask to really get to know somebody? I like to ask people's favorite home cooking tradition. I think it just, you know, it, it tells you a little bit about them outside the context of, you know, the typical interview questions. We're obviously a company that's about food and cooking. Um, and, you know, often it's just a way for people to tell their story. What's your favorite thing to make in the Ollie's pan? I've been cooking a lot of beans recently, a lot of like bean stews. Um, so I've been using our dream cooker, which is our pressure cooker, slow cooker, and then finishing it in the always pan. I love it. What is a favorite memory you have from food? So growing up, we would have fresh bread every day, just fresh roti, flatbread, flour, water, salt, and just the simplest thing, but also so decadent that someone would take the time to make it fresh every day. And, and I miss that sense of slow um, pleasure in food and life. That's pretty good. I wish I grew up with you. That sounds that sounds pretty awesome. What is your biggest pinch me moment to date at our place? I think the biggest pinch me moments are often when you're just sort of at a cafe and someone will come up and say, oh, I love your product. Or I love that collection that you did around Noru's. I'm Persian and I never thought I'd see a brand do a Persian collection. You know, it's those moments where in an unexpected way, someone tells you the impact that you've had through your brand. That's amazing. Last thing is, what do you hold as a founder as sacred? What's sacred to you, Shiza? Our mission. I think that's sacred to me. What I love about this, Shiza, is obviously you've totally disrupted the industry on product. It's why big corporations are copying you. But what I love is just how rooted it deeply is in the culture of food, in all of the cultures. And food is part of every culture. It's critical. It's it is much bigger than the pots and pans. And I think that that's what's incredibly exciting about how you think about what you're building. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody, if you have not already checked out from ourplace.com, please do. The products are incredible. You'll want all of them. And you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alex Von Tobel. Shiza, you're the best. I'm so happy that you came on today. I'm so thrilled we got to do it in person. What an absolute joy. And just thank you. I'm rooting for you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. And I'm loving the background in my room. <laughs> She's in my office. I love it, Shiza. Thank you so much. You're the best. Zoe understands that one size doesn't fit all. Each emerging growth company has its own unique needs and issues at different stages of growth. As your startup grows, Deloitte aligns its approach to adapt to that growth. Quality is their top priority. Their approach to client services focus on the priorities and challenges of high-growth companies, the road to IPO, and a commitment to the venture capital community. From startup to IPO and beyond, Deloitte is here to help. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US 
forward slash EGC. That's Deloitte.com, D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E.com forward slash U-S forward slash EGC. 